and welcome to episode 18 of That 60s Recording Podcast, conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Okay, so got a really exciting episode for you today. Um, before we dive in, I don't have any admin <laughs> this week. It's just a plain old getting right into it. I'm uh, pre-recording this in advance because uh, it's coming up to Christmas and I don't know what I'm going to be doing when this episode is supposed to drop. Um, so there. <laughs> okay, so the the exciting episode that we have today is Malcolm Toft, who was the first engineer at Trident Studios, um, the famous uh, sort of, a, I don't know how you'd describe it, freely creative studio in London, which was an antidote to the uh, sort of white coats of Abbey Road, if you like, um, which we'll get into with Malcolm. Um this was recorded over Skype, as a lot of the interviews are, and I have had one or two emails in the past about um, some of the recordings I do, um, and I think I've mentioned it on these intros before. Um, really, really lucky to have people of, um, say, Malcolm Stature and others who we've I've had on the podcast, uh, they, they take their time out to come and speak to me for no real personal gain, and it's such a great uh, way to archive um, the stories that they've got to tell. Um, and with that in mind, not everybody is set up in their house uh, in order to record. You might think that's odd, seeing as uh, you know a lot of the people I speak to are legends of recording history, but that's just the way it is, and it means that I have to record it through Skype, um, and I, that's, Skype, unfortunately, is fairly unreliable when it comes to um, the sound quality that you're going to get. So the sound quality of this was fairly poor, and I've managed to tidy it up as best as I can, um, so it's uh should hopefully be a comfortable listen, but it's not uh it won't sound as good as say my voice does right now. That's not to say that my voice sounds good. It just said, means to say that the recording quality is good. <laughs> okay. So um please forgive me for that and I hope that you can take the content that Malcolm's saying because it really 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 is uh just fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And I hope that you've gone and checked out his course which is all about recording dot uh, com i think um i'm just going to very quickly type that in all about recording.com that's correct um it's 15 pounds and you get hours of uh, lessons from one of the most legendary engineers and studio designers uh, mixing console designers of all time why would you not pay £15 for that? <laughs> it's amazing. So go and do that right now. In fact, pause the podcast and go and listen to it right now. Um, okay, so now that you've come back and you've watched all of those videos, um, let's dive straight into this conversation with Malcolm Toft. Here we go. Okay, so I'm really, really pleased to be joined by Malcolm Toft, uh, who, if you don't know, uh, was the first recording engineer at Trident Studios um, back in uh, 1967, and uh, has very kindly come on to uh, agreed to come on and speak to us about uh, some projects he's got going on now, but also cover his history um, in 60s recording, of course, and, and beyond. So thank you for coming on, Malcolm. My pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, so... I'd like to start, so that one of the main reasons that we're, we're on here is that you have a, uh, we're just diving right into the cell here, <laughs> um, you have a, a, a new course available talking about some recording techniques that, I mean, I'm, I'm going to label them 60s recording techniques, but they're not, they're just, it's just recording information that is important to get out there. Um, yeah. 
that you've you've put together um, and we'll talk a bit more about them uh, about the specifics of it later but if you could just uh, give us an idea of uh, of how that course came about and why you decided now was the right time to do that yeah there were two main reasons actually joe one was that i thought for a long time that um i'm one of the sort of you know <laughs> use the phrase dying breed of, of the early recording engineers who literally you know i started off mono recording on a mono tape recorder and then playing that back and recording onto another mono tape recorder to overdub so i've come all the way through from that you know and in that time, recording has changed absolutely beyond any kind of recognition, and recording has become very democratised, which is very good in one way. But, of course, the other side of the coin is that there are also less routes now for people to actually get proper knowledge about recording. I mean, I served what you might call an apprenticeship. The only way to get into recording was to join a recording studio, and therefore, when you join the studio you got taught the techniques. So you learnt how to do things, you learnt the proper way, and you learnt from the older guys who were passing it on. There's none of that now because you can't get jobs in studios. Studios are closing down. But that's good in the sense that people can record at home. But as a consequence of that, there's a tremendous amount of misinformation out there, which was the other reason why I wanted to do it. So the first reason is to pass on my knowledge that goes back literally 50-odd years in recording and all the way through. And the other side of it was that looking on YouTube and looking at some of these courses, I, I'm just, um, you know, I despair, for want of a better word, at the lack of information and misinformation that's out there. So I've tried to put together a series of concise uh, tutorials that cover, there's 25 tutorials that cover just about every topic and a lot that aren't covered on YouTube. Like, delve into slightly the technical side of it, but to explain the reasoning why. But the theme through all of the tutorials is that it's not about spending money on equipment. You can get very good, uh, very good um, results by just using simple equipment. But if you know the right type of microphone to use in the right place, in the right acoustic space, everything else can follow on. That, that's, I mean, the tenet is quite simple. It's that you start off with the right instrument properly tuned in the right acoustic space with the right type of microphone in the right position. If you get those things right, everything else becomes very simple after that. You can record on a set recorder. You can record on a, a massive studio console. It doesn't matter. But it's the old thing, garbage in, garbage out. This <laughs> first bit's right you'll never get the next bits right, you know? And it's all about what you have to do is listen to the instrument, especially when you're recording drums. You have to listen to the drums and, and see, hear what they're telling you and adjust the skin. So as an engineer, this is one of the things that you learn by going through studios is that you learn to listen to instruments. I can listen to a drum kit and I know what that drum kit needs because in my ears, I can, I can tell what needs to be done to that drum kit to get the right sound in the control room. And it doesn't matter how many microphones you use, if the kit itself is not sounding right, you will not get a good sound. And, and it's, it's obvious. It's simplicity itself. And this is what I try to put across in the tutorials. You know, it's about technique and it's about understanding the basics of it rather than 
People love to go spend money on gear and think that will solve their problems, but of course it isn't the answer. You know, it <laughs> so that in a nutshell is what the tutorial is about. I'm just trying to pass on the knowledge that I've gleaned over 50-odd years in the industry. And I'm a little bit unique because I've gone from being a recording engineer to an equipment designer rather than the usual course, which is a recording engineer becoming a producer. And I was always more interested in, well, what makes sound and why does it do this, et cetera, et cetera. So I do come from a slightly different background in that sense. So I'm able to, I'm able to explain some of the slightly more technical aspects, you know, what is compression, what, how is it used, why is it used. And I even explain some of the origins of, you know, how compression became used and, and you know, how EQ became used in studios. One of the little questions I always ask people and nobody ever knows is I say, why do we call it EQ? You know, what, what, why is it equalization? Why is it, and people go, well, I don't know. It's just a word that we've used, equalization. The reason goes back to the very early days of the BBC. When the BBC were using different studios to um, announce from, you know, you'd have uh, somebody doing the news and somebody else singing in another studio. And they came from different studios. And they noticed that the sound from the different studios was different. The volume was different, and the timbre of the sound was different. So therefore, they used tone control, very basic tone control, to equalize the sound between the studios. And that's how the word equalization became used. That's because, a, it's such a great story. <laughs> yeah. And, and nobody, you know, I've, I've asked so many people, so well, like, even recording engineers, you know, I say, why do we call it EQ? And they go, well, well it's EQ, it's, it's equalization. Yeah, but what's the origin of it? You know, <clears throat> and again, going back such a long way, I was, you know, taught this stuff and told this stuff. And it's obviously very basic because back in the day, equalization, tone control was total anathema. Everything had to be flat. Everything had to be, you know, to a certain standard, to a certain level. So nobody used tone controls as an effect. Tone controls were used purely to equalize the sound. So just one little nugget, if you like, <laughs> you know, is on the courses. So people will learn a lot, I think, about how we recorded and also, as I say, the reasons why things are the way that they are. Um, you know, and, and I try to give a really simplistic approach to things. That's the, I said it in, in an email to you uh, to last night, that that's one of the things that I, have taken from it you know that um it's something we discuss quite a lot on this podcast that there's a sea of of information or misinformation yeah. out there and yeah. if you were when i was learning drums you know you go back and explore the heritage of of where the drum kit comes from you listen to recordings of say uh, baby dodds back in the early 1900s and he's doing very simple drumming and on the face of it you you know, we've moved a long way from that point, but it's very important to understand what the role is within the music of that drummer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that gives you some perspective on on how you fit in the music now. And it's, yeah. in, it's exactly the same uh, for recording. And what I love about the way that you explain things is you explode the, the myth, if you like, of all of this misinformation and you just get down to the bare facts and it, it simplifies everything. And on the... on sort of the face of it, everything is quite simple. And I, I really enjoy that that's, that's what this course does. Yeah, it's, it's simple and it's common sense. And I think it's very easy to overcomplicate because these days, you see, 
we weren't able to complicate it because we didn't have this plethora of equipment that you've got now. We didn't have plugins and we didn't have, you know, again, I suppose this is where we're going to go on to. But at Trident, when I started, you know, we had literally, I think it was two LA2A compressors, two EMT plates, which for those of you that don't know what an EMT plate is, is a huge box with literally a steel plate in it that has a microphone one end and a pickup the other end and you sent the signal down uh sent the signal down the sorry you had like a, um, a speaker if you like a transducer at one end that would send the signal down on the microphone transducer and the other end would pick it up so you had the reverberation through the steel plate and that's all we had and if you wanted to vary the delay, you had a motor that actually dampened the plate. Oh, cool. And you know, that's what we had. I mean, that's what we used to make all those great recordings, Hey Jude and, you know, Space Oddity and all these fantastic recordings that we did at Trident back in the, back in the day. Literally, two compressors and a couple of spring reverbs. Wow. The recorder, you know. And the 8-track recorder wasn't even running at the proper speed, which is a, another story. <laughs> Because we ran on English mains and it was an American motor that ran on American 60 hertz. I see. And so we ran at 50 hertz. So instead of running at 15 inches per second, it only ran at 13 inches per second. So, of course, this was the first 8-track in, in all of Europe, was it not? We had the very first 8-track recorder in Europe, yeah. We, we opened the studios, tried to open the studios, and I think it was March, April 1968, actually. And we had the very first you know, eight-track. Uh, and we had the very first eight-track console as well, which, you know, I remember looking at it thinking it was a Starship Enterprise. <laughs> eight metres across the front of it. You know. Wow. So that was imported from the US, was it? No, the console was an English console. Okay. Made by a company called Sound Techniques. The tape recorder was an Ampex AG440, and that was imported from America, and that was a, a transistor. Um, tape recorder, one of the first transistor tape recorders, uh, and um, all the tape recorders were in another room. So we, the control room was quite small, so we had the tape recorders in another room, and we had a tape op, yeah. a tape operator, and you would communicate to him via a telephone. <laughs> <laughs> so you would ring him up on the phone, and you would say, okay, press record. Wow. And you hope to press record at the right place. And <laughs> The dodgy part was when he wanted to drop into uh, a particular track, and you'd go, "Can you run it back to the middle eight? And you know, if the tape, if the if the if the tape op either didn't know where the middle eight was or got the wrong middle eight, you could drop in at completely the wrong time. I mean, it was you know, it was it was designed for knockups, basically. <laughs> there yeah. were quite a few, you know. It just seems, I mean, I'm sat here recording this conversation on Logic and I know the way that I work every day. I get in my studio and I, I label my tracks up when, you know, I get sent a, a song to play on and I can see it says intro and verse and, and uh, chorus and so on. And just think the ease of, I just move the mouse and click there. And uh, yeah. even something that simple was a relatively complicated process. Yeah, I, I, I mean, one funny story. I was working with Tony Visconti and we were doing, I forget the name of the band, uh, and we were, <laughs> we were doing, this, doing this track. And we ended up, next day we came in to listen to, listen to the tracks and we looked at the tape box and there was um, a track called in, in, Into Sudan. And we thought, well, we didn't record a track called Into Sudan. 
what, what the hell is this? Yeah. So we played the tape back and the tape off um, over the microphone. You know, sometimes we, we, the only way the tape off knew the name of the track was when we'd say, you know, it's Hey Jude, tape one or something like whatever it might be. So, oh, it's called Hey Jude, and they're right in the tape box. So on this particular track, I'd said to the band over the talkback, oh, we'll have to do it again. You come in too sudden. And the tape off couldn't spell sudden, so it came as Sudan. <laughs> and it was called Into Sudan. He <laughs> <laughs> missed the tape name of the track and he thought it was Into Sudden. <laughs> Amazing. I I love it. I love those little quirks that you yeah. get from, from the yeah. sort of that yeah. way of working. It's, it's yeah, brilliant. I mean it, it was, you know, you look back on it and you think, how did we actually do it? But it all seemed perfectly logical and sensible at the time. Yeah. You know? It must yeah. have been a really um fun collaborative environment to work in. I mean, often recording is now quite isolating. I mean, I work by myself yeah. nearly every day. Yeah. Um, and you, you pro, you know, how many people would have been in the studio with you at any one time? Three or four? Oh, at least, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, in the control room, you mean? In the, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aside from the artist. Well, in the artist, I mean, you know, we recorded big orchestras. You know, we had big, fantastic. You know, back in the day when you had big orchestral sessions, I used to love those. I mean, we we had big four big tannoy speakers in the control room. Um, huge things. They were fifteen-inch, you know, drivers. And the great thing is you had a string set. Say you'd have strings, brass, you know, in a rhythm section, uh, and you'd get the drum sound and you'd get all that, and that would be on one track, for example, and then you'd get the strings and they'd be on another track. So you'd get the sound on the strings and then you'd get the brass, you know, the trumpets, the horns, whatever. And then after you've got the, you know, you'd say to the musician, can I just do a bit of drums, please? So the drummer would, you know, be a great drummer like Clem Coutini or someone like that, you know. Ronnie Verrill, you know, could be any one of these guys, and because they knew exactly how to play the drums for the studio. Yeah. And you get that sound, and then you get the sound, you get the bass sound, and it would be Herbie Flowers or some fantastic bass player, you know. Uh, and, 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 you know, you get the instrument, and then you push the faders up. You say, okay, can we have a complete run through? And I mean, the hairs on the back of your neck would just, just go up, and you heard the strings come in, and the brass, and everything. It would be like a mix, you know, and you go, wow. oh my. It was just an amazing thing. It was such a rush. I mean, it really, really was in those days to have all those musicians playing together, you know, reading the dots, and it was amazing. I can only imagine. I mean, you've just name-checked, like, the, the cream of uh, of sort of British session yeah. players. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, Alan Parker on guitar, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, unbelievable, you know. If you look back on it, you don't realise at the time you're kind of making history and you're doing all this stuff, it's a job. But the, the thing that, you know, again, something that I feel is very sad these days is we've lost the spontaneity in music very much. You know, back in the day, again, we only had eight tracks. Uh, and this is something I, I talk about quite a lot with people is that, you know, it's great that we've got 150 tracks now that we've got an unlimited number of tracks that we can work on. It's great that we can collaborate with people over the internet, we can send them tracks, we can add stuff on, we can do this, we can do that. But people say, well, these recordings that were made back in the 60s and the 70s, they've got such a, a vibe to them, such an amazing feel to them. And the reason for that was spontaneity, because in those days, everybody had to play together. 
So when a band came in, they were well rehearsed. You know, they, they'd gone through the track because they knew that when they were in the studio, you typically put the rhythm section down. So you'd have piano, bass, guitar, drums, whatever it might be, everybody playing together. If somebody made a mistake, if the bass player, Mr. Mojo, or the piano pianist, you know, got something slightly wrong, you'd have to stop the tape and go, sorry, guys, we had a bit of a goof. Can we play it again? You know, and the drummer would say, but I just played out of my skin. I just played, you know, sorry, guys, we can't, you know, redo it. Got to... Okay, so everybody was on their A game. And what that meant was the adrenaline was flowing. So everybody was really on it. So you'd get, say, halfway through the second run through, the bass player would put in a little glitch or something like that, and the drummer would pick up on it and he'd play another little offbeat or something. And the thing would turn into this amazing session because everybody was pumping, you know. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was there. So you'd get this amazing take that you don't get by just sending someone a track and then adding on to it and adding on. Because the eye contact and being in that same room together. And, of course, the problem nowadays is everybody knows, oh, okay, yeah, I do from the middle eight when you can cut and paste that. But it isn't the same as everybody. It's almost like making a live recording. Yes. It yeah. is. We would make it. When you look back on it now in comparison to today, you're actually recording live. The fact that we were putting it across four or five tracks of whatever it might be to start with, then of course we bounce those tracks down. So we take the drums, the bass guitar, for example, put those onto one track, and then we, you know, mix the tracks together so that you do many, many sort of what called track bounces mm -hmm. to get to your eight tracks at the end of it. So by the time you. And, and this is another thing that literally, as an engineer, you were mixing as you went. We were mixing the track. And I think in your podcast with Ken, spoke about the same sort of thing. I would literally do a mix. You know, it was always as the final product was going to sound because we wanted to make sure that it was going to be okay. Because once you put the bass in with the drums, you could not bring the bass up anymore. You know, so on the mix, the guy said, yeah, that's great, but I want a bit more bass. Sorry, it's in with the drums, can't do it. So we had to get it right. So you were constantly mixing all the time as you went because we couldn't make decisions later on. We couldn't fix it in the mix. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think if a few people tried that these days, you know, that they, they would learn an awful lot by recording that way. Absolutely. So Ken said the same thing. You know, he, added, he put the EQ on as he went. He put the same, you know, I do exactly the same. I don't do it all in the mix afterwards because I want to hear what it's going to sound like finally. Not go, oh, well, when I've added a bit of, you know, bit of compression to that bass or I've done this or that, it'll sound okay in the mix. I don't want to take that chance. It has to sound right as we go along. So that literally, you know, I remember a lot of engineers, their tenet would be that when they did a mix, all the faders were in a line. Because <laughs> That was a common thing. If, if an engineer, when he went to do the mix, didn't have all the faders in a straight line, he'd wonder what he'd done wrong during the recording. <laughs> uh, it's a totally different mindset and a totally different way of, of working. And it's good that you don't have the choice. It's good that you have to make the decisions there and, there and then. That's what we did, you know. Sorry, I was just going to say that's exactly what um, I was going to come to from hearing what you've just said, that there's, a, there's beauty in that um, in a sense, that's spontaneity as, as well. And it's also commitment. And I think now there's too much choice and people yeah. mull over decisions for too long. Absolutely. And, you know, they're scared of, 
I mean, I don't want to put words in, in anyone's mouth, but they're, they're almost scared of feedback they're going to get. Whereas back then, there's a lot of, I mean, even on Beatles recordings, there's many, many out of tune backing vocals or out of time guitars and stuff. And that all adds to the, to sort of the specialness of that music. There's the classic, I don't know whether you know about this, the classic swearing on Hey Jude. I, I've heard about this. It's not a story that's on the front of, forefront oh, of my mind. but I, <laughs> I've, I've dined out on this so, so many times. You know, I've been interviewed on radio about it and everything else when we're doing the mix. But there is a, the F word is on Hey Jude. Okay. Is that, yeah. it's towards the end, is it? Is it Paul shouting it? it? It's two minutes and 59 seconds in. Right. And it's the verse starts, Hey Jude, that letter under your skin. Okay. And then in the background, you will hear, whoa. And then you hear, I can help. <laughs> and I hear it every time. And I hear it every time. And and I did those recordings, uh, my, my tutorials at Paul Weller's studio. Paul Weller very graciously let me use his studio. He's got one of my recording consoles there. He's a great Beatles fan. And so when I went down there to talk to him about doing the sessions, he said, oh, um, you know, I've heard this story about the, the swearing on Hey Jude. So I said, yeah. And he said, well, I've listened to it so many times, you know. He said, I knew that there was something going on with the vocal backing. So he played it across the monitors. And when I explained it to him, he said, my God, I'd never realised. But, yeah, now I hear it. And I hear it all the time. I can hear it in the car. I can hear it anywhere, you know. And, and basically, the story behind it, actually, is that they were very friendly with a band called Grapefruit. And um, the lead singer, uh, John Perry, I think his name was, uh, was a friend of Lennon's, and they were doing the vocal backing one night late at Trident, and they'd been working long, long hours. They'd perhaps been um, smoking some interesting substances, <laughs> I don't know. You know, um, and it was a long day. And, and when you have a long day and when you're maybe doing things like that, your hearing starts to obviously go. You don't, you know, hear things quite so much. So during that time, during the overdubs, they asked constantly for the headphones to be turned up louder and louder and louder. <clears throat> so they're standing around a microphone doing the vocal backing. And John came into the studio, and I heard this from John himself. And Madam bent beckoned John down to come and join in the vocals. <clears throat> Excuse me. And John picked up his headphones up on the floor, put them on his head and went, whoa, fucking hell. <laughs> Threw them on the floor because they were so loud, okay? Well, that got picked up by the mic. And all the way through, no one did anything about it. Or no <laughs> so when I came to do a mix of it, and that was the reason I ended up doing a mix, because it was actually all engineered by a guy called Barry Sheffield, who's one of the owners of the studio. Um, and Barry did all the engineering, but Barry went on holiday uh, shortly afterwards, in, I think, July, August 1968. And, uh, and EMI weren't happy with the volume of the expletive. They said, we can't release it. So they brought it back, and I remixed it. Ah. And I don't know to this day whether it's my mix that went out. I don't know. But I did get to mix this track, and I believe that my mix went out, but I, I don't know. Um, and what I had to do, because it was mixed in with the backing, vocal backing, all I could do is dip it down at that point and get it as low as possible. But because they were track bouncing, that's what happened, and it ended up, it was on the vocal backing, which then got mixed in with the lead vocal. So they couldn't get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on the record, and, it, and it's there, you know. So, yes, there's lots of little errors on, on track, all, you know, by many, many people, because there's squeaky bass pedals, you know, on, on lots of tracks. I think somebody commented about a, 
put the lead zeppelin or deep purple track or something and said, what's going on with the squeaky bass pedal, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it, it just, it was that. You couldn't do anything about it. Even if you noticed it afterwards, you go, you do the mix and you go, hang on a minute, there's a squeaky bass drum pedal. Can't do anything about that. You can't EQ it out. No. Well, th- this is the thing that now all of those little nuances would be would be removed or it would be sorted and, and redone again. And, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. there's, you know, obviously I think that there's merit in some things like that, but then other things I think are uh, much left, much better left, you know, just... Yeah, they get too homogenised. Yeah. Know? We did not have click track. I remember once, I remember, I forget who it was, it might have been Tony Visconti again, we tried to mic up a metronome. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> we tried, and it just wouldn't work. We just couldn't get the volume out of it. But you know, there were no click tracks, there were no electronics to give us a click track. So none of those early recordings were done to a click track. And I bet if you put a BPM meter against any of those early, re- you know, any recording up till the time when a click track was available, which was like I don't know, well into the seventies, you know, they probably drifted and out of timing. I, mean, I know for a fact, not to, to keep harking on about the Beatles, but obviously that's uh, sort of my what I know most about, that, you know, Ringo, often those, a lot of the tracks were uh, separate takes pieced together. And yeah. you think about, yeah. it frustrates me when, when Ringo gets downgraded as a drummer and you think the pure role of a drummer is to, to play time, essentially. That's the, you know, the bottom yeah. line. And his time is impeccable. You know, yeah. when you think about yeah. all of those recordings being pieced together, I mean, I challenge any... Um, even professional modern drummer to match that, it's hard. Well, there was a quote from Ringo quite recently, it was on a TV show, I forget what it was now, and he said to a guy, he said, you don't need a click track, you've got me. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> yeah, absolutely brilliant, and that's right. You know, whatever you might say about Ringo, you know, um, whatever you might say, he was an inc- he was incredibly good at keeping time. Incredibly, and that's what you want, isn't that what you really want from a drummer? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, I'm really interested just because we've touched on it now for uh, just to sort of talk a little bit more about um, the mixing of Hey Jude I'm sure it's something that you've raked over a lot of times but you know I, I don't know how old you were at that point but presumably you'd been at Trident for a couple of years I was 22 <laughs> I mean that's that's unbelievable I mean what Beatles had obviously they'd been they were the the biggest band in the world yeah yeah what was yeah. what was sort of your what was your feeling to suddenly be, you know, what was it, five, six years earlier, you were working at a, a small studio, is it Tony Pike Music you were yeah, at? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I started off, yeah, I just get, go back a little bit over that. I mean, my, my career, I started, just to go sort of way back how I started, you know, again, <clears throat> I was a post-war baby, etc. cetera, uh, and, and I think, you know, there's a couple of seminal moments in my life, and I think one was when I heard the first rock and roll record, which I think was either uh, Buddy Holly or um, Chuck Berry, one of these songs. You know, I heard it on a jukebox when I was about 11 <laughs> school, and it just changed my life forever. It was the devil's music, and it was just the most wonderful thing. And then the second thing was when I saw Buddy Holly playing a Stratocaster with a white scratch plate, you know. And, and, of course, we didn't have access to any of that stuff after the war because there was an import ban from America. You couldn't get American goods. So I saw this either on the TV or on a film, or, and I saw this solid body electric guitar that I'd never seen before. And that totally turned me on to music, and I wanted to play guitar, you know. So I, you know, as so many kids did in those days, formed a school band and started playing, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was about 
14, we made our first recording at a studio in um, uh, called, near Wimbledon called R.G. Jones. Okay. And that was all mono again. And we didn't even use our amps. We had to plug into the wall and send back over headphones the sound that the engineer thought we wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the only thing that was live was drums. And this is another good point, really, but the difference going into a studio and listening to the sound through their monitor speakers as opposed to what we heard on mum and dad's dance set or valve record player was like opening a door, you know? It, it, it was like going from black and white TV to somebody showing you a colour TV for the first time. For the first time in my life, I actually heard true bass. I actually heard the sizzle of the cymbals. And I knew when I heard that, this is what I want to do. I want to be around that sound, and I want to create that sound. And I actually spoke to the owner of the studios, R.G. Jones, on that very day. and said, how do I get a job in the recording? And he said, <laughs> you've got to study at university, you've got to get an electronics degree. And I thought, no, there must be an easier way than that. <laughs> but at the age of 14, I then knew what I wanted to do. I just knew that that was going to be my career path. I you know, wasn't going to make it as a rock and roller, you know, guitarist. I knew that that's where I somehow I wanted to be around studios. Fantastic. Are you, I mean, you did take a keen interest in the electronic side. And I remember you telling me, uh, we spoke briefly on the phone before we, we had this conversation and you told me you were, you built your own desk at 17. Yeah, I was 17 when I built my first console because I'd always, always been interested in the electronic side of things, you know, and, um, uh, by that time, no, I hadn't, I hadn't got my first job in a studio. I was building this at home. I turned our front room where we used to practice with our band into an inverted commas recording studio. <laughs> but I bought this, built this wooden console. And every week out of my salary uh, in my first job, I bought um, a small valve preamplifier. Um, uh, it was a... Uh, get the name of it now, it was an Italian um, valve or preamplifier, and I put all these in a box, six of them, put them in this cabinet and linked them all up. I couldn't understand because I didn't understand something things like that. Why when you turn the volume up on one, it affected the volume on another. They were all interrupting. And my girlfriend at the time, she knew, a, she worked for uh, an electronics company, and um, she knew a guy there, and he built me a little transistor summing amplifier in a tobacco tin. <laughs> problem, you know. So, yeah, I've got a cutting of me. I was in the local paper at 17 that Malcolm Top, 17, of Walton Avenue, Kingston, has built a recording studio in his home and hopes to get a job in the recording industry later on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then I went to, the, I got my first job at the studio, I, um, Tony Pike Music in Putney, which was all totally mono. We had one, we had two mono tape recordings. And you would record everything onto one mono tape recorder in a band packing. You would play that tape recording back and put it onto another tape recorder, adding the vocal as you did it. Wow. So that was our overdubbing. And the mixer that we had was like four channel valve. The reverb was a, a spring Hammond reverb hanging from the ceiling. And that was it. Uh, but there were no, there was no soloing, there was no muting, you know, the foldback was literally straight off the output of this little valve mixer. But what that taught me and what I was taught by Tony was to use my ears to solo. 
So I could listen to a record. I could listen to a recording as it was being made, and in my head, I could isolate the bass. I could isolate the drums. We had to do that, and that. And I learned it was great because we did a lot of um, background music there. Um, that is small studio, but I learned how to mic up a clarinet, how to mic up a roller, how to mic up a upright piano, how to upright, how to mic up a bass. I learned an awful lot at that studio. And then I went on to um, uh, CBS Studios in London after a couple of years and ran the, ended up running a smaller studio. Uh, so studio. that was, um, that uh, at CBS you were using two-track and four-track? That, Again, that right? yes, I was in their second studio. I was not in their main studio, which okay. is actually how I got the job at Trident because I ended up running their second studio, which is really a voiceover studio. We did a lot of commercial work and stuff like that. And I wanted to get into their main studio uh, but I couldn't get in because the engineer that ran it, a lovely guy, Mike Ross Trevor, brilliant, brilliant engineer. But Mike, bless his heart, you know, um, guarded his, his job very closely and didn't want somebody else to come in. And I'd heard that it was very difficult to move into the main studio. And I tried and I tried. And then one day somebody said to me, one of the guys there said, oh, there's this new studio opening in London. It's called Trident. Uh, and they've got the first eight-track recorder, and I've not even done four-track, but I've never done sort of mono and stereo. And um, so this new studio is opening uh, in London, and they've got an eight-track recorder, and I've got an invite to come to the opening party if you want to come. So I thought, well, you know, there's not many studios that are opening. I'll go along. And the place was absolutely heaving. It was right in the centre of Soho, just off Wardour Street, the Lands Court. There's queues at the door to get in. And I found myself in the control room, and then in the control room is this eight-track console, you know, as you said earlier, with eight metres. It looked like Starship Enterprise. And I was totally overwhelmed by it, and I got talking to this guy, and he was very sort of upper class. He said, hey, do you like our recording studio? And I thought, gosh, you know, you're not quite my type of person. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the studio's great. So I ended up going up to the next floor, and I met one of the owners, Barry Sheffield, who's a totally different sort of guy. And he just happened to say, um, where are you guys from? And I said, well, CBS. He said, what do you do? He said, oh, I'm an engineer. And he said, oh. Um, and he said to, I think there were two or three of us there, does anybody want a job? I'd always remember this. He said, does anybody want a job? And I put my hand up. He's like, <laughs> I didn't think any more of it. And I went home. And two or three days later at CBS in the reception, there was a phone call came through. And I did, the lady in reception said, oh, Malcolm, there's a call for you. And it was Barry. And he said, were you, you know, were you serious about wanting a job? Now, that party went on till about 3 in the morning. You know, I left at about 7.30 to go back to Kingston to my mum and dad. Yeah. Uh, how he remembered me, I do not know. It's one of those moments in your life where something happens that was meant to be. Somehow Barry remembered me and he tracked me down, you know. Wow. And he said, because I had heard through the grapevine that they were looking for an engineer and couldn't find the right person. So something must have clicked you know, between us. And he got me back there, and I met his brother, Norman, who was the um, uh, chairman of the company. And uh, they sat me down in front of his desk, and bearing in mind I was, what, 22, they gave me a glass of red wine, <laughs> and they said, OK, can you mix this track? Now, I'd only done mono and stereo, you know, so it was a total blag. So I sat in front of his desk, and... Um, did this mix, did a mix, I can't remember what the thing was, did this mix. And they basically 
sent me a letter the next day saying you've got the job. Fantastic. And I still got a copy of the letter. Wow, very cool. I'd like to offer you the job as a balance engineer <laughs> and a salary of £1,250 per annum. I, I mean, I, I have no no concept of what that means. You might have well, to explain. In those, days, in those days, it was over the £20 a week barrier. I'd just broken the £20 a week barrier. <laughs> it's a milestone, you know, because if you're earning between 20 and 30 quid a week, you were doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you so must I have thought, felt like you'd hit the jackpot. But, well, I did. i tell you why, because they had an incredibly good overtime rate. Okay. The overtime was like double time. So... I ended up, after two years, believe it or not, buying an Aston Martin DB5. Oh, my Lord. Wow. Which, because I was living at home. I know. Everybody said, I wish, you know, kept it, blah, blah, blah. I paid £1,800 for it. So that's that's about, what, a year and a, year and a bit salary? Yeah. yeah. It was five years old. I bought this red Aston Martin DB5. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And then sold it a couple of years later because it was so expensive to run. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I did well there, but it was a total blag to get the job, you know? And then within, I suppose, a month of working there, I got assigned to work with this new guy who just come over from America called Tony Visconti, who had literally just come into the country. And he was working with this band called Tyrannosaurus Rex. And, again, it's one of these things in life, you know, and I make this point, about, you know, if you're going to be a recording engineer, you've got to be a good communicator and you've got to kind of get on with people. And I've only, been, I've only done a few sessions with Tony and I can always remember I was in the studio setting up a mic and his voice came over the talk back and he said, hey, Mal, what star sign are you? And I said, uh, well, I'm Taurus. And he said, well, so am I. We'll work together. <laughs> and Tony and I worked together for three years. Amazing. And Bless his heart, if you look at those tutorials, you know, Tony, who went on to record, you know, Bowie and Morris, you name it, you know, Tony's done the lot. Um, credits me with teaching him how to engineer, which I did, because he was very keen to learn how to be an engineer. Fantastic. Said, you know, my career wouldn't have taken off, which was very nice of him. But there's moments in your life where you take a different path, where things happen, and you either grasp that path or you don't, you know. And you have to go by your gut, and your gut tells you things. Well, speaking of which, I was going to ask, when you moved to Trident from CBS, presumably you were on a in, in a comfortable position at CBS, and then Trident was a new venture that yeah. you... I mean, you had, a, a, I assume, no idea what you were getting into, no, I mean, let alone okay. that you were going to be working with T-Rex a month later. No, it was a... Or mixing Hey Jude later on. <laughs> well, yeah. It, it was a total gamble. It was, in fact... There was this great uh, technical engineer at CBS called George Baller. He was, uh, I forget what nationality he was, Polish or something. Oh, he could make things, he had a lathe there. He could make, he made um, uh, copies of the Portic equalizers and stuff like this, and wow. they worked exactly like the original. This is going back to 1966, 1967. Brilliant guy. And he said, 8-track never work because he said this, the heads are stacked too close together and you will get problems. He was actually right in a way because what I learned from my cost on my very first session is that you couldn't record on two tracks or any number, you couldn't bounce onto an adjacent track okay. because there was bias leakage between the tracks and it caused tremendous feedback. 
And my first session was a guy called Alan Price, who played with the animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was people playing with the animals, and we tried to do that. And we got this horrendous feedback. And he said, what the hell's going on? <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And then I, I found out that you couldn't actually bounce from the adjacent track. You know? So, yeah, but it was a total gamble. None of us knew where it was going to go. None of us had any idea. Norman's concept in setting up the studio was to simply make a studio that's more on the American lines. And he was absolutely right, because the thing about Trident that no other... Well... Very few studios had at that time because most of the studios were owned by record labels. So it has Decca, EMI, Pi, uh, Philips. They all had their own studios. And so they're all run in a fairly authoritarian sort of way. I mean, you know, it's renowned that at EMI, Abbey Road, you had to, you know, everybody wore white coats. And you had to get a chitty to get a microphone out of the store. So you'd have to, oh, I want to know him in your 87. Okay, right, right out of docket. You go down to the stores guy. If he's on his tea break, you know, he'll wait half an hour before he comes back to give you the microphone when you've lost that moment in the studio. And that didn't even change for the Beatles in many ways. You know, they were able to circumnavigate things. But, you know, again, if you, if you listen to stories, you know, by Jeff Emmerich and the engineers there, they would say the same thing. It was very authoritarian, and they broke the rules. It was only because of the Beatles. The atmosphere at Trident was completely the opposite. The client was everything. We had this great guy there, Jerry Salisbury, who was like a ghost. And he would take you toast and marmite sandwiches and cup of tea at three in the morning. Wow. And the Beatles and the people loved it, absolutely loved it, that if you wanted something... You know, at Abbey Road, the canteen closed at five, and after that, you couldn't get a cup of tea. <laughs> we were completely different. Everything was about the client. It was all about keeping the And we had such a relaxed atmosphere. Nothing was too much trouble. You know, if they wanted a microphone, sure, we've got it. If anyone got it, we'd get it in, or blah, blah, blah. We'd do something, you know. There were no boundaries. And so when the Beatles came to Trident, they absolutely loved it. And the reason they came to Trident was because Abbey Road had not put in their eight-track recorder. Because, again, of their bureaucracy, they took a year to approve the tape recorder. Their technical guy spent a year checking out the tape recorder. The Beatles had just done Sergeant Pepper, totally frustrated by only being able to work four-track and having to literally record on two four-track recorders and press play on both both machines to get it to play back. (laughs) So frustrated... And, and they were doing Hey Jude, and again, they were having the same problems, and they thought, let's try Trident. They'd heard good things about it, and they came to Trident, and, and they absolutely loved it, you know. And then, of course, I went on, I did um, uh, Mary Hopkins, Those Were the Days, which actually knocked Hey Jude off the number one spot. <laughs> but I found out from Tony Visconti only last year, and I didn't realise this, that was the only record that Paul McCartney ever produced. Ah, interesting. Because apparently Paul had had it on his list, his sort of bucket list, to produce. He'd never produced before. And so he produced that record. And after he'd produced it, apparently he didn't like producing <laughs> So I engineered the only record that Paul McCartney ever produced. Fantastic. So what what was he like as a producer? Year, you know, yeah. And Paul was lovely to work with. Such a really, really nice guy. Paul me a glass of beer. When he came in, he said, oh, my name's Paul. You know, yeah, right. I didn't know that. You know, <laughs> I had to contribute anything to the session. He was really nice. 
really nice. Fantastic. Yeah. Something I, I probably should have asked you way back at the beginning of this uh, this little section of the conversation, but I want to get, how would you describe, I mean, you've just talked about Trident as, as trying to be uh, sort of American influenced. What? But ironically, it's it's been known as a British sound. So what, yeah. what would you describe as the British sound? I think the British sound is the British musicians. You know, I think that's it in a nutshell. Very different approach to the Americans. Um, as I say, that era of British music, I mean, it's really interesting when you look at it, and it's been said so many times that we took the blues that the Americans thought was just, you know, this cultural backwards music. <laughs> And we turned it into our own, you know, Stones in particular, the whole, so many bands. We took American blues that they thought of as just being indigenous music and turned it into a whole new form of music. Because we were kind of living on the dregs, if you like. We were living in the shadow of this American thing, you know. They'd come through the war and come through it relatively unscathed. We were a decimated country, you know, with, with very little, you know, to go on. So we only had our own wits. And so we became very, very creative. We loved American rock and roll music, and then we turned it into something else. And, you know, that's why the British invasion happened, because we took their music and turned it back on them. <laughs> so we had a very different approach to the Americans, very, very different approach. And it was an English approach born out of, I suppose, our, our class structure, if you like, because it was a lot of working-class kids who strive for something else, who made music that, you know, if you talk to anybody, Paul, Pete Townsend, Paul Weller, I mean, just about anybody of that era and that ilk, that's what they will say. We were disenfranchised kids, if you like, you know, teenagers were just beginning to have their say. The one thing that we all had in common was music and we were rebelling against the establishment and music was their way of rebelling, you know? Yeah, I mean, that completely makes sense. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, when I... When I asked that, I assumed that you were going to talk about some something to do with gear, but you're absolutely right, and that ties in very well with every almost everything that we've we've kind of spoken about. That it's what yeah. goes in first and foremost that makes the sound. Yeah, I don't think the gear had a. I mean, there was, again, there was a British attitude. I think in recording, a British way of doing things because we were finding our own way. We were prepared to experiment, perhaps a lot more than I don't know. You know, because the Beach Boys experimented. I mean. It's difficult to say. I mean, we were always playing catch-up, I think. We were playing catch-up in gear, uh, in so many things, uh, because a lot of the gear came from America. All the recorders came from America back in those days. But we had a sound. We, we had a particular sound. And that's uh, the irony of it is, of course, that all major recording consoles are British. <laughs> yes, you yeah. Know, they're all British. The Leeds, the Tridents, the SSLs, Soundcraft. They're all British companies, and it's still the case today. You know, I I do want to I want to come to that just before we talk about um, that side of things. I'm interested to know if there was a a standard, given how loose the structure was at Trident. Was there a standard way of setting up a session, or was it just different different ways for different bands, or how did it work? Yeah, I mean, we all had we all kind of worked. I mean, we had you know again. You see, Trident was like this perfect storm. Because, you know, we had Roy Thomas Baker, Ken Scott, you know, myself in a small way. There was another guy called Robin Cable, who was a brilliant engineer, did all the early Elton John stuff. You know, it was a meeting place of some incredible people, you know. Uh, but we all 
Roy and Ken both came from different studios, so they had their own way of doing it, you know. And I never looked at what they were doing and said, oh, okay, I'm going to follow what Ken did. I just did it my way, and they did it their way. And we all had different ways of doing it. So we all had, we all created, I suppose, different sounds and had different relationships with clients, et cetera, et cetera, you know. There was no set way because we'd all come into it, you know, the Sheffield brothers, Barry Norman, I mean, Barry, funnily enough, was the least experienced of any of us <laughs> and yet turned out to be a very, very good engineer. Barry had not really worked in a studio before. He just worked in Norman's studio, which was above a drum shop. <clears throat> and I never really appreciated that until later on because when we started, it was Barry and I did all the engineering for the first couple of years. And then I think uh, Robin Cable came in, then Ken, and then... Uh, Roy, or might have been the other way around, I can't remember. No, Roy took over from me, that's right. Roy took over my engineering chair. Um, so that would have been about 71, something like that. I think came to... Anyway, the point <laughs> was that we were very good at attracting good talent. I mean, as Dave Henschel came in, Mike Stone, I mean, all these great engineers came through Trident, you know, um, in the early days. So there, there was somehow this magic at Trident that was able to attract really good people without actually knowing it, if that makes sense. I, th I suppose from what you're saying, it allowed people to spread their wings a little bit. And yeah. whereas, yeah. you know, when obviously discussed uh, EMI or Abbey Road with Ken, and, it, and we touched on it just now, it's very prescriptive and there was a set way of doing, um, you know, set way of miking a kit up and a set way of miking yeah. this up. And at, at Trident, it sounds as though you could, you know, you have all of this experience that you're bringing to it and you want to experiment. Yeah, there was a mixture of Trident of, um, later on, there were engineers who came through, like Mike Stone and Dave Henshaw, who started off as T-Boys, therefore they learned, you know, under Roy and under Ken, so they would follow that route, I guess, but still flower in their own way. But when I joined Trident, the people that came in after me, like, um, Robin Cable and then Roy had already worked as engineers in other studios so they didn't come up through the ranks you know what I mean yes. so there's a difference there between someone when you come up through the ranks which was a typical way of doing at Abbey Road you started off as a tape off or whatever and the guys in the white coats or the previous engineers said well this is how I mic up a drum kit this is how I mic up a piano. Da, 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 da. So they followed through that apprenticeship and then they became engineers and it was quite a closed shop. And you had that rope where you started off at the lower echelons, you were a T-boy, da, 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 da. I tried and it was slightly different because if we saw a good engineer, then we'd take them in or we would nurture from within. Later on in Trident's evolvement, as it evolved, engineers came from within. You know, because just you know, we didn't need to look elsewhere because there were good people coming through. But in the early days, they came in from different areas. So again, that created that whole, I guess, Trident sound and way of doing things. Okay, so there we go, Malcolm Toft, part one. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I actually spoke to Malcolm on the phone about a week before we recorded that interview just to talk through um, the way the podcast works. 
And we ended up speaking on the phone for about 45 minutes. And he was exactly like that on the phone with me. He went over a few of the stories as the same stories. And he's just such a lovely guy to speak to. His passion for audio and this whole world in general is so clear which is partly why he's recorded that course all about recording.com and is giving away for such little money is because he just is keen to pass on the knowledge and i think that we should just be lapping it up you know somebody like him with his experience and his knowledge um any t- anything he says we should be listening to and uh, and taking it on board so go and check that course out while i'm here uh, another quick thing i just want to tell you about I'm reading a book at the moment called Life on Two Legs by Norman Sheffield, who is the chap, if you don't know, who gave Malcolm the job that he mentions in uh, this episode. He uh, is one of the founders of Trident Studios. It's a really great book. It's broken up into small little sort of story tidbits. Um, so it's good for picking up and putting down again. So go and check that book out. I'm not sure. I bought it off the website. It's Trident website. Um, so I'll go and I'll I'll go and find out where you can get it and link it uh, on there. So I just check the dates, um, and this will be dropping a few days before Christmas. So in two weeks' time, it will be the new year, twenty twenty one. Hopefully, a better year for us all. Although I did start this podcast in twenty twenty, so it's not been a, a particularly bad year for me. I've enjoyed it, um, even if it has been a little different. Ah, oh, one last thing. I don't know if I I didn't even mention in the opening. I've. Uh, I'm experimenting with putting little uh, segments of my isolated drums in between uh, these sign-offs and the um, the actual podcast interview. I hope it's all right. I'm going to listen back to it and uh, and I, I check that it's okay. And I hope it is. It's all uh, me endeavouring to slightly professionalise this podcast. <laughs> so yes, little improvements, small percentages. Okay. So yeah, it leaves me to say a big thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music for this podcast. Uh, he is a very good friend of mine and a super musician, and I'm very grateful for everything he does for me. And um, that also goes for David Henshaw, who provides me with wonderful artwork every fortnight for this podcast. And a huge thank you to you all for listening to this podcast this year and uh, getting on board and helping keep it growing. Um, I do really, really appreciate all of you listening and supporting me and emailing me and uh, putting up with these rambles um, all for a, a, an interview with some absolutely amazing people okay so have a great Christmas and I will see you in a couple of weeks time goodbye goodbye